Hi, I'm Colina Presnell. And hi, I'm Jenny Joseph. Welcome to episode two of our Gift of Friendship podcast. We have a very informative podcast for you today. Yes, we do. Our first guest is a lady, Julie Soon. She's a lawyer who had a bone marrow transplant in 2015. And on recovery, she went on to have twin boys. Neil Pennock will speak about the necessity to build on the Australian Bone Marrow Register. And Amanda Mack, an apheresis clinician, will tell us what happens if you are chosen to donate your stem cells to save a life. And of course, we'll then talk about books and other podcasts. But Jenny, as you know, I couldn't find a suitable donor in Australia. So my tissue type was placed on the International Register and a young man named David was a match and he lives in Troy, Michigan. And I'm delighted to have David on the line now. Jenny, this is David Eisenbacher. He was my donor. David, I've heard a lot about you and uh, Kalina's story. You certainly played an instrumental role in her recovery. Dave, I've just got a couple of questions for you. Uh, one, how did you feel when you were approached because as I remember, you put your name on the register when you were at university, is that correct? Yes, it was quite a while after I had signed up for the registry that they had gotten in contact. Yeah. And I had yeah. almost forgotten about it. Um, I had put my parents' uh, contact information down and they didn't move. And that was the way that they got a hold of me because I had moved uh, two or three times since uh, since university and uh, I didn't update my information. And so when they finally approached you and told you there was a match, they didn't tell you where I was or who I was or anything like that, did they? Correct. Um, they sort of hinted at it during the donation. They said that uh, bone marrow matches can be anywhere in the world and sometimes even on the other side of the world. <laughs> until they told us who you were who you were and uh, where you were we really had no idea yeah well, I thought it was someone else in the United States oh okay and so how did you feel when they told you you actually had a match I, I was really surprised just because it had been so long and I figured it would have been much sooner but uh I don't know the details of what it takes to really be a match out of the out of the billions of people on the planet, but uh, yeah, I was surprised. And what made you put the name down on the register, David? Uh, during during college, I was uh, a blood donor, and they did a drive to try and get blood donors to put into the uh, bone marrow registry because uh, there was a person that was funding. The joining of the registry trying to help their child trying just trying to get enough people in the registry so that they could uh find a match and you had kept uh in contact and, and you knew all the little hiccups that i'd had in the first year yeah well nothing we didn't hear anything for a year because of the rules of the the marrow donating but then obviously after a year we found out where you were and who you were and uh, saw you had written a book and all of that information. As soon as I found out who you were 
and we spoke for about half an hour. That was great, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then Max and I came over to um, Toronto and you and Heather came down to our friend's house. That's when we first met. Yes. Yeah, it was uh, interesting that you had uh, friends in Toronto, which is uh, very close, very close to where we are in Michigan. Yeah, and so I've just got one last question. What effect has it had on your life, knowing that you were able to save my life? Uh, no real direct effect. I mean, it's good that I was able to, uh, to help you. And I was also surprised because I did receive a second call to donate bone marrow a second time. Oh. And I agreed to do that, but then it ended up not being a good match for me. There was another, another better match. So um, yeah, it was, uh, it made me happy that I was able to, uh, to help you. Most of the stuff that I did though, I was asleep when they actually, they had me put out. So the work I did, I was sleeping. Yeah, because you had to give your bone marrow. It was the only one of the few states in America that would not release stem cells. So you had to go the full bone marrow extraction. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was even an option until much several years later that they, when they called me for that second donation, they said it wouldn't be the same. It would have been a uh, just the uh, stem cells. It wouldn't have been uh, bone marrow. They poked you in the hip. Yeah, that's uh, that's no fun. Um, but look, it was great that you could do that because you know there were so many states uh, that would release stem cells, and I know my doctors preferred me to have stem cells, which is more the embryo. Oh. But when you came along, you must have been a pretty good match, and it must be the Guinness that you drink. <laughs> <laughs> I've been very healthy since then. I have a few little hiccups with, you know, dry eyes and things like that, but nothing much to worry about. That's good. You also provide me uh, an everlasting uh, alibi because my DNA is in two places. Yes, I know. Well, if I go out and commit murder and they get my blood, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, yeah. Um, because of course I'm O positive now, your blood group, and yep. uh, and I still have my DNA in my mouth, but your DNA in my blood. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? That is yeah. incredible. Yep. Yeah. So, well, it's been great talking to you, Dave, and thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us and helping, you know, with our podcast because we can't face-to-face -face with patients at the moment because of COVID. And so we're bringing out this podcast. All right, <laughs> we'll go. Thank you very much, David. Great have to see you again. Have a great Christmas. Today, our guest is Julie Soon. Julie was diagnosed in 2010 with acute myeloid leukemia. Jenny, I'd like you to meet Julie. Hi, Julie. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, and welcome. Thanks. Julie, what was life like before you found out you had cancer? Uh, it was fairly normal. I was at the you know, early stages of my career um, and, and juggling work, home, family, going to the gym, um, hanging out with friends and um, my then boyfriend. Um, 
yeah, pretty much just focusing on climbing the corporate ladder. Um, and uh, yeah, I was making plans to move interstate for work. And how did the diagnosis come about? So as part of my preparations to move interstate uh, for work, I you know, was just getting a general sort of health check done. Uh, so I got a blood test uh, one morning and um, yeah, got a phone call from my GP that afternoon telling me that I had to come see her straight away. Right. And you were pretty young, weren't you? Uh, yeah, like 30, 31. Yeah, good. And you had no uh, symptoms prior to that? Nothing obvious. Um, I think as a lawyer, you're, you're pretty tired most of the time. <laughs> so, yeah, that wasn't, um, you know, extraordinary. So what do you remember about the day you found out that you had acute myeloid leukaemia? Uh, I just remember getting a phone call from my GP in the afternoon and she said, uh, I've got the results from your blood test and you need to come see me straight away. And I kind of just fobbed her off a little bit. I was like, no, 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 I've got a, um, I've got a client dinner to go to tonight. Can this wait? Yeah. And um, I've known her for years, like since I was, you know, 10. And she um, said, no, you need to come straight away. So, yeah, I, um, I rushed over and, uh, yeah, she gave me the diagnosis. I didn't quite understand what acute myeloid leukemia sort of meant. Um, mm. I think for me, this concept of leukemia was something that, um, you know, you see. You don't get out of. Well, yeah, and and you see, um, you know, posters of uh, of kids with leukemia, yeah. you know, on on sort yes. of you know children's hospital, um, you know, uh, ads and stuff. So yeah, it was just a bit foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I called my sister, who's a doctor, um, and and told her, and she obviously knows how serious a diagnosis like that is, and so yeah, mm. off to the hospital I went straight yeah. away. Isn't it amazing how uh, Sue Patchett said I can't come in now I've just had a drink <laughs> and I was quite uh, offended were... because I had to come back from my ski holiday in yeah. Star. <laughs> and here you are telling us uh, that you were you know not wanting to go in whether it was something that we sort of had a preconceived idea that was going to be something wrong I don't well, know no, I think for me it, it wasn't that it was um sort of the other side of the spectrum where I thought like it's like everything's fine. Like I feel fine. There's nothing yeah, wrong. Yeah. Um, if there is something supposedly wrong, they've probably mixed up my um, <laughs> my sample or something. Like yeah, it's all it's all fine. Like nobody panic. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's right. And how long uh, did you go through the treatment to be- from beginning to recovery? Um, so I went through three rounds of chemo, um, and I can't remember exactly, but each round um, consisted of kind of chemo but then recovery and that would last maybe like you know four to six weeks um, of me being in hospital yeah um and then uh ultimately there was the bone marrow transplant uh which again i think it lasted about six weeks from start to finish Um, you had a donor so who was your donor um, so my donor, I was fortunate enough to have, um, uh, was my sister. Uh, actually, two sisters were, were matched, um, but they preferred one because she hadn't had kids. Right, yeah. Mm. Well, earlier on in this podcast, we were talking to my donor in America. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing because not, I, I've got like a thousand direct relatives and I've got four brothers and a sister, but none of them were a match. Yes, yeah, yes. So I had to go on the World Register. Yeah. And uh, we're going to talk later on to Neil Pennock about the local register. 
Oh, yes, yes. And the biggest challenges that you faced during this time? Uh, I think for me, um, a lot of it was around loss of control and um, you know, not really sort of knowing like necessarily how long things will take, um, how I'm going to react to certain things. Um, yeah, it was just, I didn't know what to expect or even where the end was. Yeah. What, are, what are some of the things that you learned going through the process? Um, I think um, one of the things that really kind of struck me um, through this whole process was just how amazing nurses are. Um, I mean, having been in hospital for quite lengthy periods at a time, I really needed that support. And um, I mean, yeah, they're amazing because, you know, they, they do sort of, um, you know, the things that you normally think they yeah. would do uh, with your, you know, um, treatment and, and all that sort of thing. But um, they're just really supportive in terms of your mental health as well. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, one particular round of chemo. Um, I went through fevers for a very long time and it was just really sort of wearing me down mentally. But um, I just remember the nurses were just incredibly supportive and, and just sort of got me through that really dark period. Yeah. Um, another, they're a bit like family, aren't they? They do. While you're going yes, through that, yes. they become your family. They the do. nurses and the doctors and yep. all the clinicians yep. and people around, yeah. Because they're the ones who kind of see you um, day in, day out. They see you at your absolute worst. Um, they're just, you know, there yeah. to yeah. look after you. Um, and, yeah. I mean, I also sort of was able to see all my um, family and my friends kind of step up and, you know, just yeah, rally around. Yeah. And what sort of coping mechanisms did you use, you know, to help you through your journey? Um, I think for me, yeah, having that sort of support network was very helpful. Um, you know, confiding in, in family and friends. Um, but also, I guess, for me, uh, faith was, was something that helped pull me through um, as, as well. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's very important to have some sort of faith, isn't it? Mm. And what, uh, what was life like after you had the bone marrow transplant? <clears throat> um, so I think initially it was a little bit scary because you're sort of released into the world. You don't have that sort of 24 seven um, support of the nurses and yes. the doctors around you. So yeah. it seems a little bit, um, yeah, scary initially. You, sort yes. of get, you feel a bit institutionalized. Yes. And when, you, when you go home, you have to face it all on your own or with your yes. family. Yes. You have to be the strong one in a way. You yes. Know? So, and then you sort of have to make sure that you do the things you're supposed to do, go back for your checkups Check and, you know, ensure that you're taking whatever medication you need to be taking. Um, I was on steroids for a period of time and I think, um, yeah, the side effects weren't great. No. Um, but, you know, you mm -hmm. sort of slowly take it one day at a time and then eventually, you know, that sort of twice weekly um, checkup becomes fortnightly, becomes monthly, becomes, yeah, it, and slowly you start to just live a normal life. Yeah. How long do you think it took you before you actually started leading your normal life again? Um, I mean, I had a, the nice distraction of um, an engagement and a wedding to plan for, so uh, that probably helped. But, yeah, I'd say, you know, six months or so before you started feeling like, 
really um, anything, yeah, starting normal. to get back yeah. to your normal Anything life. like normal, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it's a bit scary. You know, it um, really knocks you around, you, your nervous system, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So your confidence and all that. And I just couldn't um, believe how tired I would feel um, because I considered myself quite a fit yes. person. Yeah. And then it just kind of knocks you around and, and actually, like, yeah, even sort of just you know, walking for five minutes, you yeah. sort of got quite tired, which Although is it's, quite interesting. It's an inconceivable tiredness mm. for anybody who hasn't been through it. Mm. And I remember coming home here and thinking, um, I'll walk up to the other side of the house next door and because I knew I could come back. And then the next day I thought I'll go up to the oh, other yeah. and come yes. back until I eventually could go down to Charing Cross. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just incredible. So what's life like for you now, Julie? Oh, so I'm happy to report, um, yeah, things have gone well. Um, I mean, I, I haven't had any relapses so far. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been able to sort of just get back into full-time work. Um, you know, I got, got married. Uh, I've got two, uh, you know, naughty twin boys they now. Absolutely delightful, uh, those little boys. And, they were so cute. Uh, yeah, yeah and, and we recently um, ad adopted a COVID um, mini sausage dog. So. Oh. <laughs> to add oh. more chaos. Yeah, that's right. Oh, it gosh. is a bit chaotic. Oh, that's fantastic. And those little boys, I remember when you brought them into the hospital once. Yeah. They were just delightful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... Um, with all the medical advancements, it's yeah, it's been really positive. Um, you know that. I mean, first of all, we're able to sort of live through yes. the acute myeloid leukemia in the yes. first place. But then from that as well, you can go on to just live a, normal a very life. normal, normal life. life. Yeah. And and if you had one piece of advice that you would give, you know, somebody who's about to embark on the same journey as you, what would it be? I think for me, it would be just um, taking one day at a time and just not sort of, um, yeah, like thinking too far ahead and trying to figure it out too far ahead, like just focus on getting through, you know, the next day, the next treatment, the yeah. next batch of symptoms. Um, yeah, because, you know, like slowly you'll just hopefully get through it all and yeah and just get back to normal yeah and it'll just right. be a very distant uh very sort of remote memory yeah uh, for a while you do get concerned that it's going to come back and but, yes definitely but yes. that that goes away after a while yeah I mean it takes some time for that to go away I remember um being in the hospital and you know family and friends weren't allowed to bring in flowers yes. um yeah. and you know you had to stay clear away from anything with dirt and yeah, so babies yeah. and animals and, and, and yeah like when you first you know get released from hospital yeah. you look at these things and you're like oh like I should not go anywhere near you know <laughs> those you those babies or that you know pot of flowers yeah, it's, it's such a strange kind of yeah. feeling oh good well thank you Julie it's been delightful talking to you thank you and all the best I have with me Neil Pennick. He's a finance manager with AMP. I first met you, Neil, in 2015. You did indeed, Kalina. You walked in the door of the, uh, the Tracy's room at St Vincent's Hospital and I thought you were a nun coming to visit. 
No, I was, that's the first time I, I came across what, what you're doing as part of Gift of Friendship, and it's a beautiful thing. Great. And tell us a bit more about Trace. Trace was a, he spent his entire life um, raising money. He was a professional fundraiser. And then um, he found himself needing a stem cell transplant. So you set up the TLR Foundation. Why did you set that up? And what's it all about? Okay, well, TLR is Tracy's initials. Yes. Um, look, when you see a patient go through um, a stem cell transplant, you see the care provided to them by doctors and, and nurses especially, um, your heart just melts. You want to do something to, to give back. So, so we set up the TLR Foundation to help people needing a stem cell or bone marrow transplant and, and help give them the best chance of making a, a full recovery. Oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? And what have you accomplished so far? In our first two years, we raised $300,000 and we now have the Trace Ritchie Patient Room at St. Vincent's yes. Bone Marrow Transplant yes. Ward. Mm -hmm. um, we, we raised an additional 50000 for the Arrow Foundation to set up some nursing scholarships. But then we set ourselves a goal of raising $160,000 to make those nursing scholarships perpetual. So oh. we're not just getting one nurse to um, graduate with a, a master's in, in cancer and hematology nursing, but yeah. one every year pretty much forever. That's oh, fantastic. But the main reason we set up the TLR Foundation was to help find the next generation of stem cell donors and actively encourage the 18 to 30 year olds to sign up to the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry. Tell me, or tell us, tell our listeners a little bit more about the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry. It's a mouthful, but the ABMDR is the donor registry here in Australia. It's linked to all the other registries around the world, giving access to an astonishing 37 million potential donors oh, worldwide. Amazing. Um, you think that finding, with, with those numbers, you would think that finding a donor would be easy, but sadly that's just not the case. Being a match comes down to your tissue type. You can only donate your stem cells to a patient with a really similar tissue type and that's entirely inherited you inherit half from your mum and half from your dad so in reality you will only be asked to donate to someone with the same ethnicity or mix of ethnic backgrounds as the patient yes earlier on we spoke to uh to my donor who's uh, in michigan in the usa and my connection with david goes back to austria uh, where his heritage goes back to. Um, so it's very interesting, isn't it, uh, Neil? It sure is. Uh, how many people are registered here in Australia? Uh, there's currently 175 or around 175,000 potential donors registered with the APMDR, but only one in 1,500 of those people are ever going to get a call. Um, you see, the best transplant outcomes come from younger donors, those in the age 18 to 30 group. Um, in fact, young men will mostly be chosen by doctors. Um, but here in Australia, young men aged 18 to 30 only make up 4% of those registered on the ABMDR. We need to change that. Please don't get me wrong, young ladies make great donors too. <laughs> But once someone becomes mm. pregnant, their mm. immune system goes into overdrive and it increases the risks to the patient, um, especially GVHD. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's what Julie was talking about earlier because she had two sisters that were a match for her. One had had children and the other one hasn't. So 
she actually went with the sister who, who'd had no children. And that's right. The, the doctors are always going to check your siblings first. Like if there's still a 25% chance that, mm-hmm. that your brother or your sister is going to be the mm-hmm. one that saves mm-hmm. your life. But if you don't have that, mm-hmm. if none of your siblings are potentially right, then you have to go to the registry. Yeah, and the doctors have said that the, uh, the success rate with unrelated donors is pretty much as good. It is indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really interesting here in Australia, though, because of the people needing to find a donor where they don't have a, a family member that's a match, 90% of those people um, rely on stem cells coming in from overseas donors. 90%, that's huge. Huge, yes. And, and of course, with COVID, uh, it's been a bit of a challenge, Well, hasn't that's it? exactly right. It's been a huge concern. Once stem cells have been donated, they've got 72 hours to get to the patient. And historically, they've been hand-delivered by a human courier. But with the international travel off the table, the challenges are enormous. But it really does highlight exactly why it's vital we get more young Australians to register domestically. Yeah, and what are your challenges in getting young people to sign up? Oh, that's simple. It literally is just education. Most people have never heard of a stem cell donor or people needing a stem cell transplant. Of those that have, they've got this preconceived um, idea that it's a really painful experience to go through. So our goal is to explain to everyone that donating stem cells isn't the bad experience a lot of people think and that just a few hours of their life can literally save somebody else's. Save somebody else, that's right, yeah. Well, and how is it, how easy is it to join the registry? That's, that's the good thing. Last year, the ABMDR introduced a simple cheek swab test as a new, quick and easy way of joining the registry. Instead of a blood test. Instead of a blood test. Um, face-to-face recruitment drives have been put on hold thanks COVID, um, but now they've gone digital. People can simply sign up online and get a cheek swab kit in the post. They fill out a form just to highlight your ethnic background and just make sure that you are eligible. Uh, put your contact details and post it back. And, and you're not going to hear from the ABMDR again unless you come up as a match. Mm. Yes. So what's next for the TLR Foundation, Neil? Uh, look, we, we've still got $50,000 to raise um, to make our nursing scholarship perpetual. We were hoping to do that with the city to serve this year, but thanks again, COVID. Um, but vaccine permitted, that will happen next year. But our major focus is now on recruitment. We know that young people make the best donors. So we're working with a group of people at the University of Sydney to set up a new society. We're calling it Osmarin, to help recruit uni students. So you get a whole bunch of new students, the vast majority of which are the under 30s. Every year we get new ones coming in. So hopefully this will be something sustainable and repeatable and expandable to other universities and TAFEs around Australia. Yes, exciting times. Thank you, and it's a great idea. And I'm sure if Tracy was here, he'd be very proud of what you're doing. I'm sure he's helping things in the background. (laughs) He is. Thank you very much, Neil, for your time. And Jenny, for our listeners, both Neil and I are on the board of the Arrow Bone Marrow Transplant Foundation. I have with me now Amanda McLaughlin, who is the apheresis clinician at St Vincent's Hospital. When Amanda refers to her patients, she actually is referring to the stem cell donors. 
Hi, Amanda. Hello, Colina. Tell us, first of all, what does aphoresis mean? Well, aphoresis is a Greek word meaning to take away by force. So virtually we're taking away a patient's blood um, through a forceful manner, um, spinning it in a centrifuge in a machine and spinning off uh, the product that we require, which is usually the stem cells. The stem cells, right. So if a person is the one in 1500 match from the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry, and that donor agrees to give their stem cells, what happens from there? Well, virtually the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry will bring the patient to the Kinghorn Cancer Centre, um, and this is usually when I will meet them. I meet them to see whether their veins are of a good size so that we can actually um, insert <clears throat> some large cannulas, and we need to insert two. So usually one in one arm and one in the other. So I usually uh, do a vein assessment to check that that's okay. If this is all okay, um, the patient will then see a doctor to make sure that they're physically fit to be a donor. Um, and then the patient will go away and do their little workup, which is usually a few little injections in their tummy to help stimulate those stem cells. And then on the day of collection, they'll come back to me I'll bring them into the centre and I'll do a set of OBS on them to make sure that everything's okay and we virtually hook them up to the machine, the apheresis machine. So I'll put a little cannula in one arm and then another little cannula in the other arm and we virtually uh, draw their blood out and it goes into the uh, tubing which is attached to the machine and then inside that machine is the centrifuge. The centrifuge sets, spins around very quickly and that allows us to separate the blood products. And these blood products separate on their specific gravity, which is their weight of the cell. <clears throat> we are then able to collect the stem cell into a bag um, and the patient is virtually connected to the machine for approximately four to six hours on a particular day. So the blood is virtually just coming out of their body and spinning around in the machine for those four to six hours. While the patient is on the machine, there is also a little bit of anticoagulant that mixes in the tubing, and the patient will get a little bit of this anticoagulant, and that just keeps and the blood... And when you say the patient, you actually mean the donor? Yes, the donor, because the, the yeah, yeah. they're actually a patient, patient for me. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the donor will um, virtually be hooked up to the machine, and the centrifuge spins around. We're able to s spin off the stem cells into the bag, Sorry, what I was getting at is the anticoagulant also spins around and the patients will get a little bit of this anticoagulant. Uh, sometimes a patient might experience a little bit of numbness and tingling and if that's the case, it just means they're a little bit low in calcium and they're having a little bit of a reaction to the ACDA. And if that happens, then we just give a little bit of calcium in the drip and usually those symptoms disappear. Mm -hmm. And that's a similar or it's the same process. I mean, I had an autologous tra transplant first, so I had to go on that stem cell separator. Mind you, 20 years ago, the cell separator was a hell of a lot bigger than it is now. You've got a smaller machine, but it's the same sort of process. And I was only there for, as you say, three to six hours, where, you know, we, in the last podcast, we spoke to Sue Patchett, and it took her a few days. Yes, well, every patient or donor is different and we check a particular blood count at the beginning of the day and if that count is very low, 
meaning there's a low stem cell count there, then the patient needs to stay on the machine a little bit longer than someone else who has a very high count. So it is the luck of the draw, really. Um, we never know which patient will have a high count and which patient will have a low count. So we do that little blood test at the beginning, and then we can sort of gauge how long we need to leave you on the machine once that result comes back. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very enlightening. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Colina. Thanks, Carl. What interesting interviews we've had today. But now I think it's time for our book reviews. Okay, I agree. My book recommendation for today is a book called Panchenko. It's a second novel by Min Chi Lee. It starts in the early 1900s with a young man called Huni. He's a, a young guy who's got a cleft palate and a twisted foot. But despite his deformities, he marries and his wife gives birth to a daughter, Sunja. Sunja makes some bad decisions and ends up pregnant, so the family then move to Japan. The story then follows four generations of a Korean family in Japan. They make their fortune through Panchenko gambling clubs. Well, that sounds like a really fascinating read, Kalina. I've been reading something completely different. It's called Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. This is really a beautifully written book. It revolves around Kaya, an abandoned marsh girl who survives with very little help from the outside world. It's a story for me of unrequited love, loss and loneliness. It really is a breathtaking read. It is. I've read the book and I, I would say that it's probably my favourite book this year. Before you let off the hook, remember you promised to tell us a little bit about your book, Lash Me Fair. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, Lash Me Fair. It's a story of cruelty, bravery, savagery and new beginnings. Lashmi Fair is a story of a man called Henry Passmore. Henry's commissioned with his family and other warders to escort 300 prisoners to Fremantle in WA. Uh, the era is uh, 1860s. It's a time when the Swan River Colony is in need for men to help build the colony, so the, the English establishment send prisoners there, and they're mainly military men or low-grade convicts. Henry encounters the antagonist, an Afghan trader who abuses two Aboriginal boys who work his camels. Other characters include Henry's family, an Aboriginal character named Squam, and Fenian prisoners. And Kalina, if I, just to add a little bit, mm -hmm. this is really a story about your great-great-grandfather, exactly. is that correct? That's correct, yes. He was an amazing man. It is a novel based on true events. And you, yesterday we went to see the movie Furnace with David Wenham and that depicts the era in a movie. That's all we have today for book reviews. What about your podcast for this episode? Well, talking about prisoners, my recommendation for a podcast is titled On Guard, a story about prisoners in the toughest jails and the wardens who tell the stories. I can just imagine the interesting stories in On Guard. It's what a great recommendation. Thanks, Cole. Well, Jenny, that's a wrap for this episode. In our next episode, we'll interview Dr. Sam Milliken. He's head of haematology at St. Vincent's Hospital. And we're excited about bringing you an episode on breast cancer in the new year. 
So now I'd like to wish you, Jenny, and all our listeners the very best for a healthy and happy 2021. But before we go, I have an African proverb that helped me through my journey. As long as the night seems, the dawn will always come. <laughs>